Lawyers always need to be on top of their game, or at least appear to be. It can feel overwhelming to recognize or admit when we aren't, and even harder to reach out and get help. Welcome to Sidebar, brought to you by North Carolina's Lawyer Assistance Program, where lawyers help lawyers by sharing their experience, strength, and hope as they delve into their personal journeys of recovery. Hey everybody, this is Robin Moradies, the director of the North Carolina Lawyer Assistance Program. I'm here today with Tom, a real estate attorney and great lab volunteer. Tom, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Robin. It's good to be here. Well, we've linked to your article, Being a Lawyer Saved My Life. And in a lot of ways, you have a very prototypical lawyer story. So I want to start kind of at the beginning. You have a line in here where you talk about, like many alcoholics as a child, you had distinct feelings of emotional unease. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So, you know, as I mentioned in my article, life was not difficult from the standpoint of, you know, a family that is well-resourced, comfortable, home, good schools. And yet with my friends, I never felt quite at ease. I always felt a little bit uncomfortable and I can't really put, or I couldn't really put my finger on it uh, more specifically than that, but I felt a little insecure around other kids my age. This is a surprisingly universal experience that recovering alcoholics share because a lot of things that we talk about in recovery are just what I call the human condition. And alcoholics drink over the same kind of problems that non-alcoholics have. Alcoholics just drank over them. But I found this unease, this discomfort, this self-consciousness, this feeling of something not being quite right and not fitting in is really unique to alcoholics. I asked some of my friends in Al-Anon, did you ever feel this when you were growing up? And they didn't. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so what did drinking do for you? So I recall very distinctly the first time that I drank. And it was with a group of these friends. And as soon as the alcohol hit my stomach, I immediately, it was like a switch went off. And all of that discomfort vanished instantly. And I felt self-confident, connected, and a complete part of the group of my friends. It was like magic. Mm -hmm. And that's what we start to chase. Right. So you talk about your progression through undergrad and you got married. And then what happened? I got married and I sort of languished. You know, I had an undergraduate degree. I hadn't put any thought into why I was getting a particular degree or how it might tie into a profession or supporting myself. After several years of not being able to figure out what to do, I was getting a lot of pressure from my, my wife to do something to further, you know, my education. And, you know, frankly, I just felt kind of pushed into doing something, but I couldn't decide what I wanted to do. So I chose a degree and a profession that I thought would give me the most uh, flexibility of doing something. I thought, well, I could be a lawyer, I could go into business, 
I could work for a nonprofit. It would give me something, some credibility and some ability, you know, ability to uh, support myself and be a contributing member of the family. But I really didn't know what I was getting into. I thought, if, you know, I'll throw my application in. If I can get in, I'll, maybe it's the right thing to do. And I was fortunate enough to get in. Um, and so I started law school. And what was that like for you? Well, it was actually, it was hard as hell. I was older than most of the, because I was, I'd been seven years out from undergrad before I went back to school. And so, you know, again, I was sort of in a position where I was feeling, you know, a little bit out of sorts with a lot of the people that were there, but it took so much focus and effort that I think it really was a it was for, for the first time in a long time since I had been a teenager, I had to focus more on something other than alcohol. And so I didn't stop drinking by any stretch of the imagination while I was in school, but it took such concentration that I was able to manage the drinking during that three years and, and get through school and get a job. And that's when it sounds like your drinking started to take off. Yeah, so took a job with a firm and I liked it. I mean, it was challenging because, again, you're thrown into a profession where you're really sort of ill-prepared to practice. I understand why everything you study is absolutely necessary to be a lawyer, but at that time, they taught very little about how you practice as a lawyer how you learned to actually practice rather than, you know, the concepts behind laws and arguments. Uh, It was more like, well, where do I find the forms to do this? (laughs) Everybody else seems to know what they're doing. I can't figure out anything else. I didn't know what a certificate of service was when I, I went to my law firm and my legal assistant prepared a certificate of service. And I was like, what's this? Yeah. <laughs> I never heard of it before. Yeah. So, you know, I began feeling my way. And at that point, the alcohol, again, it, it helped smooth it. If I was feeling stressed about learning to practice or whether I was competent enough or whether people thought I knew what I was doing, alcohol was a great way to get past that feeling mm-hmm. you know i wasn't drinking during the day during this t- that time but my <clears throat> drinking in the evening just really began to gradually accelerate over the years it was gradual incline for those first four or six years uh, of practice i became more comfortable and more competent with the practice and i found and fell into my practice area but the drinking by that point was just it wasn't something I was doing necessarily to make myself feel better consciously by that time it was just an addiction and and I just had to drink no choice I had to drink more as time went on well and you you also describe in here something that's also very prototypical which is 
You looked good on the outside. You were keeping it together at work. Yeah, I mean, as I drank more and more, particularly as I was getting closer to where everything fell apart, I couldn't not drink until five o'clock in the afternoon. It's just that. It's just that's just the way it, it goes. I was having to do more and more of my life while drinking. I had young kids, you know, I had family at home and I had this job that was demanding. So I had all of these responsibilities and I had to be somewhat intoxicated to have the emotional wherewithal to keep at it. I just couldn't do anything really without alcohol. And I was petrified that people would know that I was drinking. I mean, it's obvious that 99% of the people in the world are going to think that you are a failure. And if you're drinking while you're working, you got a huge problem, which frankly is true. But I needed to compartmentalize as much as I could. I, I became very good at hiding what was going on inside me and what I was doing to treat that from the outside world. I didn't drink with people. I drank alone. I didn't drink in bars. I wasn't a social drinker. It was a medication for me at that point. And I just couldn't stop taking more and more of that medication. Were you hiding it from your wife and your family? To some extent, I was. At home, I was not hiding it initially until I started to try to quit. And then I would quit for two weeks, four weeks, and then I would relapse, but I would keep it under wraps as long as I could, but I wasn't able to, to keep it under wraps at home. That too, I just needed to drink too much. Like I couldn't keep it a secret at home. But at that point in my relationship with my wife had deteriorated to the point where we were both actually drinking excessively and you know, I didn't really care about hiding it from her. Mm -hmm. Take us through the beginning of the end. And sometimes, you know, we talk about when that professional facade is cracked, but sometimes the professional facade gets cracked because the personal life kind of comes crashing in. Yeah, well, my personal and professional life started to come crashing in simultaneously. My bottom begins really with my first alcohol-related accident. I lost control coming home late one night and you know, went over a guardrail into a creek and got arrested for DWI. I... Uh, went to the office the next day and I said, you know, I got arrested last night for DWI. I said to my partner and uh, my partner was surprisingly okay. He was like, oh, you know, I think a lot of people think anyone can get a DWI. That's not necessarily an absolute proof that there's an issue, especially if you're not an alcoholic, you might think that. So he said, get it together. And I said, I'm going to get it together. And I went to AA meetings and I swore off alcohol again. Um, I had to get an attorney. Of course, I had no defense. Um, and so I was convicted and had a uh, limited driving 
privilege. And I did stop drinking for a couple of months and was proving to everybody that I had turned over a new leaf. I got my limited driving privilege extended to 24-7 because I'm such an important lawyer. You know, I have to work all the time. And I may need to go into my office at any time of the day or night. And of course, you can guess what happened. I, I relapsed again. And I'll tell you what, those of us who are alcoholics know that when you stop drinking and then you start again, it's not like you pick up where you left off. It's like you pick up way further down the road than when you stopped. And I went for eight or nine months on a tear. I was drinking nonstop. I was still working, but you know, I had gotten separated. I lived in an apartment by myself. And of course, you know, you can guess what happened. I got pulled over. Uh, again, and was arrested for a second DWI. This time, because I was on limited driving privilege, that's the same as driving with a revoked license, which makes it even worse. So now my, I'm like, my career is, is you know, on the verge of, I mean, I was convinced as, a, as soon as I got arrested, I thought it was all over. And I took the, the, Perp walk into my partner's office again the next morning. <laughs> and uh, he said, I, you know, I mean, I just fully expected to be fired. And he said, look, why don't you go uh, contact the lawyer's assistance program? Because you obviously need some help. And I said, where, where's the number? <laughs> And, you know, he had he had the grace to, you know, not fire me on the spot and give me the opportunity to fix this. You know, I I did. I picked up the phone and I called uh, the lawyer's assistance program. I was put through to the then director, Don Carroll. And I said, I really need some help. I'm in trouble and I'm calling you guys. What do you think I should do? He arranged to see me a day or two later. We had lunch. I told him, I told him the truth. You know, I mean, for the first time, I told somebody the truth about my drinking. And he referred me to uh, an alcohol counselor for an assessment, which I did. And the assessment, not surprisingly, came back and said I needed some treatment that I was an alcoholic and I needed treatment. Um, I was given the opportunity to do outpatient treatment, which I did. And I went under uh, a contract with the Lawyers Assistance Program. And you did that to help with your criminal charges? I did. I mean, part of, there were more than one reason. I mean, I really was sick. Mm-hmm. you know, emotionally and physically sick. And I knew that I was on the pathway to just dying from drinking myself to death. Did you see the inherent value in accountability that the contract offered? I did. I did. But to get to your, your initial question, absolutely part of what I hoped to achieve by entering into the contract and doing everything that 
was suggested to me by the lawyer's assistance program was to try to keep myself from going to jail. I knew I was up against a serious charge. Mm-hmm. And I was told that if I did what I was told, if I went to A meetings, if I met with my peer monitor and I stayed sober, that the lawyer's assistance program would advocate for me. They would give me a letter or some indication that I could show to the court that I was making a genuine effort to get sober and stay sober. And so that's what I did. I became accountable to the lawyer's assistance program and, and my peer monitor. And I, you know, I finished my treatment in about two or four months. It was intensive outpatient treatment. Went to AA meetings, got a home group, worked on getting sober and served my uh, time under house arrest. They were gracious enough to allow me to serve my time uh, with an ankle monitor, which is a, a great way to start to develop some humility. <laughs> that's, story, that's part of the later story. I had to get my pants tailored so they were long enough to cover the ankle bracelet at work. Well, I have a question for you that you, something that you bring up in the article. Can you tell our listening audience what your experience was like the first time you went to AA? And what it was like when you went with your lap mentor that you got paired with, because there's a big difference. Can you talk about that? Sure can. I sure can. So I went to AA meetings before, you know, when I tried to get sober after my first DWI, it was suggested to me by someone that I go to AA meetings. And so I found some meetings and I went and I felt completely out of place. I felt that these folks wouldn't understand me like I wouldn't understand them. I just didn't feel like I fit in with this group. I mean, just sort of like when I was a kid and I didn't fit in you know, with my peers. I just, I couldn't connect. I didn't feel like I could connect to the people that were there. And so I stopped going before too long. So fast forward to after I met with laughter, after sort of simultaneously with arranging for me to go see, get an alcohol assessment, he said, look, I want you to go to an AA meeting. And here's a guy who lives in your town who is an alcoholic in recovery and a lawyer. And um, why don't you meet with him? And you know, see about going to a meeting. So I did meet with him and he took me to a meeting. And it was interesting because when we got to the meeting, there were all these same, not the exact same people, but they seemed like the same people who had been at these meetings when I went the first time. And yet he was completely comfortable with them and they were completely comfortable with him. I mean, they had a connection. And so somehow, you know, for me, that was transformational because it just made me feel like maybe I could fit into this group of people. Maybe, honestly, for me, 
developing a relationship in the fellowship to time, but somehow being with another lawyer that I could relate to and going to those meetings made a difference for me. It made me willing to consider that I might belong in a fellowship like that. One of the things I love about your story is that highlights the importance of our lab volunteers because they often serve as like a bridge person for someone to see that it can work for them and that they are not alone and that they're not so terminally unique, as you point out in the story. Being with a, a lap volunteer who's a lawyer, who is a part of the fellowship, just somehow made me feel a lot more comfortable with mm-hmm. the fellowship. And you have a very dramatic way of expressing this in the opening of your story, where you say that being a lawyer, you think, is what actually saved your life, that you might not have made it into recovery, but for your connection with your volunteer at the Lawyer Assistance Program. Yeah, it's it's absolutely true. I mean, being in recovery for these years, I see hundreds of people who are never able to get sober because they can't feel connected to a recovery fellowship. And that's the way I was. And yet, when I was paired with another peer, another lawyer, I was willing to do it. It just it, it opened the door of willingness just enough for me to dive in. And I'm afraid that had I not had that assistance, I would have been one of those people who would never have been willing to do it. And I don't know where I would have been, but I probably wouldn't be here. What year was that? So that was 1998. So you've been a lap volunteer for a long time. You're real active with our program. If you had any parting words of advice to our listening audience, anyone out there, what would you say about the lawyer assistance program or your experience with it? What I would say is the same thing that I say almost every day, I can't stay sober by myself. And I couldn't get sober by myself. And until I contacted the LAC program, I was by myself. And you don't have to be alone with this struggle. You know, you absolutely don't have to be alone with it. And you may not know it, but we are out there and we understand exactly what you're feeling and what you're going through. We've been there. And we're here to share our experience with you and help. I know the tendency is to want to hide everything, yourself and, you know, whatever your struggles are, but you don't have to do that. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us today, Tom. It was my pleasure, Robert. Thank you for joining us at The Sidebar. If this is your first time, we encourage you to listen to another episode or two, subscribe to our newsletter, and peruse the resources at www.nclap.org. And if you know a lawyer who could use a hand, please share this episode with them today. Remember, at Sidebar, you are not alone. In fact, you are in quite good company.